0: The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.
1: Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And uh, today I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Angelique Harris, who's got about six different titles at Boston oh. University. The one we like today is the Dean of uh, Diversity and Inclusion and a couple of other things there. And I can't wait to hear all about the background and what led Dr. Angelique Harris to where she is today. Welcome, Dr. Harris. Can you give a good introduction of yourself that really tells people what's going on? Because I butchered it and I apologize. (laughs) No
0: problem at all. I can totally understand the titles thing. It's, it's kind of funny. So I am a, again executive um, associate dean of diversity and inclusion at the School of Medicine. I am also an associate professor in the Department of Medicine and the General Internal Medicine section, and I'm also executive director of faculty development for uh, Boston University Medical Campus. And, and by, by training, I'm actually a medical sociologist. And I, most of my work and my research examines the ways in which marginalized communities experience health, wellness, um, support, community. Um, I also look at a variety of other things in terms of health and wellness, like social movements, families. I do a lot of work in LGBTQ communities um, and things along those lines. And so I basically like to study just community among groups and populations and how it influences their sense of wellness.
1: So you're a champion of the underdog and those of us who are marginalized. Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of us. Oh leaders. yes,
0: there are quite a bit of us.
1: <laughs> when did you first decide to take the pathway you've taken?
0: All right. So I think of going way back. Um, I think the pathway into sociology or the pathway or kind of studying what I'm studying. So going way back when um, back when I was an undergrad, I went to UMass Boston and I, at the time I wanted to go into law enforcement, interestingly enough, and be in the FBI and um, actually be a forensic psychologist and profile serial killers. That was actually what I really wanted to do. And I had a professor who was really adamantly against that. She really encouraged me to, she kept saying, you know, you should study sociology and be a sociology professor, which I thought was pretty funny. And I'm like, no, why would I do that? And so long story short, ended up doing that. But I ended up getting really interested in health specifically because I was um, a teaching assistant for a course on um, HIV and AIDS in society. And one of the interesting things about that course was that it really highlighted and um, emphasized um, people participating in risk-taking behaviors. And this was in the 90s, so the very late 90s. So things, you know, times were a little bit different um, then. But participating in the risk-taking behaviors and, and and a lot of stuff that was discussed in class was very stigmatizing. And having known a lot of people and being part of the LGBT community and knowing a lot of people who were HIV positive or who were just, you know, gay men, bisexual men, that it was the stuff that they were saying was a little bit problematic and so i when i discussed this with the teacher um was really open to having me even teach a couple of sections of the class which was great and so i started getting much more interested in the fact that in essence different people experience the world very differently exactly as you're saying with different brains you know like and that and that people's experiences all of this will determine how they behave how they interact with others etc and so quite often those who are teaching courses or who are doing the research don't really understand The experiences of those who are living, you know, or experiencing certain um, problems or trials or challenges, et cetera. And so they quite often take it as if it's some sort of deficiency on the person, when in reality, this person's adapting to the challenges that they have. Um, it's not, and so they're stigmatizing people unnecessarily. And this is one of the things that I find um, so fascinating with Donald when you're looking at HIV. But I started um, looking at other things in terms of just like other health related issues um, that were stigmatizing everything from obesity and such, where, you know, how do we determine what's considered normal? How do we determine what's considered um, right or wrong, et cetera? And a lot of that is all socially and culturally constructed. Whereas in at a certain point in time, a group of people decided this is what we want, this is what we like, this is what's normal, and this is what we're going to encourage, and it's, and this is what we have in society. So it's, so that's basically what I study is, in essence, like that process, how we come to understand that, and um, the influence that it has on people, and particularly health and wellness within different populations.
1: In your experience, what would you say is the biggest problem, the biggest roadblock to inclusion? and diversity stigma
0: i think is the biggest it's somebody this strange thing so irving goffman who's a sociologist um i wrote this book called stigma notes on the management of spoiled identity and it was like the book on stigma it came out in the um, i think 69 um but anyhow one of the things he talked about was that we're all being held up to this person that doesn't exist this like um Quite often, um, and even Audrey Lorde even and, and talked about this as well as a black feminist um, theorist where we're held up to this like a white, straight, cisgender guy who's tall, but not too tall, muscular, but not too muscular, college educated, but not these. Basically he's Christian. He's. I mean, like it's so specific that this person doesn't exist. Um, you Just know, like statistically,
1: school. statistically there is no average. There's no, no. average. Thing. I'm sorry exactly. to interrupt. Yeah. No,
0: no, no. But that's the point. Exactly. Yeah. Is that yeah. so? We're holding up. So we all. So so many people in society, our society, are holding everybody up to this weird standard that doesn't really exist. And so as a result, everybody in some way, shape, or form is stigmatized or feels some form of like. Um. Some people are privileged in some ways. Some people are oppressed in other ways. But we all feel stigmatized in some way, shape, or form. No matter how privileged we think we are.
1: And if we extrapolate that to the educational and employment platforms, we say that the employers have been, for instance, and the educational institutions, focusing on these different people for the weak points, instead of focusing on the strengths, saying, boy, this person is, just as an example... A math wizard. He'd be great in our engineering school. Instead yep. of he doesn't read so good, you know. <laughs> I don't sense. know. Yep.
0: No, and this is why this is so important, and why like nowadays is is so great um, with. Uh, people having a better understanding and respect, appreciation for the fact that people are different, that we have a diversity of brains, of bodies, of ways that we approach problems, of of all these different things. And as opposed to trying to force people into the ways in which and Really, very few people think or behave, which is what we do as a society. We're now having a better appreciation for the fact that people think differently, people interact and engage with people differently, and so, and we're also importantly, we're able to learn a lot from people who think differently and engage differently. And we're able to this influences everything from research, teaching, us would be able to be much more innovative and such.
1: Now you've uh, you've worked at. It- undergraduate institutions and graduate institutions yes as an alumnus of the which I was lucky enough to get into the uh, six-year medical program at Boston University I got to experience undergrad there and for a couple Mm -hmm. of years and then grad and uh, thank goodness they accepted me because I had been expelled in the first grade and the 10th grade but I wasn't (laughs) a bad kid but anyway um (laughs) Is there a difference for you? Which do you prefer? Did you prefer the undergraduate or now that you're in the graduate milieu? Um, Is there any difference and do you prefer one over the other?
0: Yeah. It's not really even a preference as much as it is like a, a pretty extreme difference in terms of, um, for me, I feel like the impact that I'm able to have. So in, in those regards, I actually prefer being at the graduate level because you're working with faculty, students, um, who more are directly engaged in communities. Um, with students and teaching students, which is awesome, you know, you're teaching them and working with them, but a lot of them, you know, they go on to graduate school, medical school, you know, there's still a whole good, Seven, eight, ten years before you really get into the real world that of you know, other education they're getting. But at this point, what I really like is that you're getting them kind of when they're thinking about how to apply what they've learned in the real world into their either their medical practice or their research, and you're working with faculty who are helping students think in, in those regards. Um, so it's I really like it a lot. And also it feels as if, um, like I was saying, that the impact feels much more direct in a graduate at this level than it did when. I was undergraduate. However, I did learn a lot at the undergraduate level with- So everything about neurodivergency, about uh, differences in the ways in which people um, interact, engage, the variety of people, services, support are so much better, quite often, at undergraduate institutions. And having been at so many different institutions throughout the country, I got to see the different types of services and support and the ways in which um, students and people are treated, how we interact with different people. And so it's interesting now being at the graduate level, seeing that it's a lot of this support and the services and the, the perception is actually very different at this level um, versus at the undergraduate level, because we have so much more diversity at the undergraduate level compared to this. And the stigmas are a little bit different in such at the graduate level. And so it's, it's really fascinating. So I was able to take a lot of what I learned at the undergraduate level, and it's been really helpful being able to apply here at the medical school.
1: Well, what do you feel is the biggest thing we can do to help, uh, decrease or eliminate the stigma of being different?
0: I think definitely it's really thinking about education overall and thinking, and this is the problem is the whole, because there's the whole, like, you know, K-12, then we've got college, then we've got medical school, and, and what's been really nice is that in K through 12, we're doing a much, much, much better job of working with kids who think differently, who learn differently, um, which is absolutely wonderful. The problem is that we kind of need to get up there at the college level and the, uh, particularly the, the medical school graduate level, et cetera. And part of the challenge is that a lot of our faculty and a lot of people aren't simply just trained or are aware of the differences in how um, students learn at the K through 12, because you have because they're trained teachers, um, they're learning these things, they're getting trained in these things. So it's very different. When you're looking at college, college, I mean, they call us professors for a reason. I mean, we're not trained teachers, we're, we're trained researchers. Um, we, we work to do a lot of teaching. We really try to teach. We love teaching. A lot of us do take a lot of programs and courses in education and, you know, things like that, because we really care about teaching. But in the end, our training really is about either patient care or conducting research, et cetera. And so we don't really have that same level of understanding of um, the differences in terms of how people learn and what our best practices. is. So really, I think a lot of it will be training Faculty training, um, administration in different institutions, so that people have a good understanding of what the challenges that students have. But also not just students, because we need to be aware too that our students are graduating; they are becoming our faculty, they are becoming our staff, they are becoming like our colleagues um, and such. And they already are our colleagues, um, really. And so we have a lot of faculty colleagues who already have you know, may think differently, they're learn, learning, um, you know, um, differences and such. And so you know, we need to make sure that uh, we talk more about it, that we have more of a culture where people are able to disclose and discuss um, this. And so that is something where it's seen as just, I mean, this actually is normal. Um, Having different brains is normal. And so we need to do much more effort of normalizing that. So really a lot of it is education, education and training.
1: Do you find that you are, uh, the different institutions and universities, like say in Boston, where you have more universities than anywhere in the world. maybe. Are you guys collaborating with each other or is it pretty separate? How does it work up there? I find it pretty separate in certain regards because the institution, particularly a school like BU, is so
0: big. I mean, we've got 30 something thousand students. I mean, it's a massive school. And so I think like 10,000 faculty or something. So because it's a big faculty and staff, it's a really big institution and it's like a little town. And so it's, so a lot of it is even trying to collaborate within the institution itself is a challenge um, between, and we have three campuses. So there's that, so- uh, but and
1: there's politics, about, let's not forget
0: politics. <laughs> all the politics are on all of that, exactly. And so, but there definitely does need to be some sort of, and I would really welcome that. And I think it's a great idea much more collaboration in, in regards of thinking about what universities as a whole can do to try to really bring more attention to this and really address the needs of students. I think universities are doing a much better job. It's more so at the graduate level, um, I think is where a lot of difficulties come in. And exactly as Ali was mentioning um, that, you know, he was afraid to disclose having ADHD. Like it's, this is the culture that we have. or people are afraid to disclose that. And You know, and it ends up in a weird way, further stigmatizing because people aren't understanding how common it
1: is. It's it is it's hard to uh, hard to get over the hump. But once it gets embraced, which depends on how much you're educating the particular audience, you know, like. Pediatricians get Mm -hmm. zero training in autism, as one example, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing. I gave the first ever lecture the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons on neurodiversity, and yet, you know, half of their patients, are, you know, you're treating it. You have to do it. You have to connect, and mm-hmm. um and what happens, you know? Yep. So it's it's tough stuff, but we we have to start somewhere, um, and uh, uh, I think that that communication is key. How can our audience who's might be listening to this on our podcast or watching it on a video or reading it as a transcription, how can they learn more about your work? Uh, More about my work? So I definitely, I have some- um, You More about your work than you.
0: If um, you more about me, I've got a because um, of BU profiles we've got that have a short description and a, um, my bio is up there. A lot of my diversity DEIA work is up there. Diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility work is up there um, as well. And um, I actually have a number of um, my books are actually available in libraries, um, including the Boston Public Library and places like that. And do you and I have, some to have
1: any of them with you to hold up to the camera? Uh, I actually do have a couple of Yeah. Hold up a couple of them. Tell us the names of these uh, books.
0: It is Womanist AIDS Activism in the United States. It's who we are. And this book is actually looks at and examines um, activism and the ways in which Black women have worked to address um, AIDS, education, awareness, um, provide resources within communities. So much resource, um, research focuses on this the high race of HIV among Black women and talk about how, you know, it's things are so horrible, et cetera, but they don't really emphasize what are people doing to enact change? And that's really what a lot of my work does is focus on that. And actually I've a few things I just felt like all the books or projects, but like it's one we're looking at connected but not comfortable and queer people of color. And this is looking at the role that community plays within um, That the community plays within um, queer communities in the role that just, you know, having a sense of um, networks and support and how that helps people feel, and also the role that um, discrimination and lack of support plays on people. As long as I have books on writing and um, AIDS in Black churches and things, I have quite a few projects.
1: Oh, boy. Yeah. Not busy enough, I don't think. (laughs) Speaking about the LGBTQ, um, what, what guesstimate would you have about from your unique position? And doesn't make you right, but it means you have a unique position um, and aspects of everything going on. What would you estimate the incidence frequency, however we want to define it, in the population of People who might identify as LGBTQ plus transgender, you know, add them all up. What might you think? A range well, would be? it's
0: it's definitely varies based on generation, which is why it's really hard to. Um, Estimate and guesstimate because when you're looking at people from the traditionalists or baby boomers, the numbers are much lower. But if you're looking at, for like, you know, for example, Generation Z and um, the millennials, it's significantly higher. So much so, where it's even a quarter of the population and some, a third of the population for um, youth. And so it's really high. And so we're thinking that a lot of it is that, is, that it's extremely prominent and same-sex attraction. Is, it goes on a continuum and it's very fluid for a lot of people. And so as a result, um, some people may identify at some points in their life as being um, queer in one way, shape, or form, and on the point they may not. Um, Some people make me feel more comfortable coming out as opposed to others. A lot of it depends on the part of the country you were raised in, the culture you were raised in. Um, And so we even know that a lot of that same-sex behaviors in terms of actual activity, like same-sex sexual activity, is actually much more common um, among men, for example, who many of them who don't identify themselves as being bisexual or straight. So it's when you're looking at um, behavior versus identity and all these other things versus relationships. You have people who are, um, I mean, there was even one study report that was, you know, at a certain point, I think particularly like in the 90s, I think they were doing a research where that most lesbians had been married um, to, or I think in a particular study had been married to men at a particular point in time. And so it's, you know, a lot of it is, you know, just the time, people's level of comfort of being able to come out. And now particularly as generations Progress and more young people feel more comfortable and stuff. And I think it's going to be much more common and the numbers are going to go up. But if you look at Kinsey, um, after Kinsey the Kinsey study, that was 10% of the population, um, we argue. So he said that, in essence, 10% was completely straight, 10% was completely gay, and everybody else in the middle And like were in some way, shape, or form, <laughs> kind of bisexual in some continuum. So, you know, so there's that um, theory as well.
1: It seems like everything's a spectrum, just like our brains.
0: It is. And this is the thing is that we tried so hard and for so long to put people into different categories and say, you're just this, you're just that, you're that. But now as a society, which is so nice, we're beginning to really appreciate the diversity of people. If it's the diversity of um, sexualities and identities, the diversity in how people think and how people um, interact with each other and approach problems, the differences in body types and such. So, yeah.
1: Is there anything you'd like to discuss that we have not covered today?
0: Um, I think thinking about the role of medicine and what people in medicine and biomedical research um can do to reduce the stigmas. We talked about it, um, I think, but I think we could talk about a little bit more. I think is is in terms of like everything from trainings that they can maybe do or participate in, um, readings that they could um, participate in. And also importantly, thinking about ways to try to um, encourage their students to disclose more if there is a problem or with, Colleagues, if they might have a challenge or we just want work as an institution like you know how can institutions work to create a culture where people feel particularly when you're looking at the health sciences and the academic health sciences, it's not one because of this area, but two also because we produce the researchers, we produce the doctors. We produce the people that are studying this. And so if we're having an issue within our own area, talking about it, approaching it, providing resources, how are we going to be able to do that in our own research for our patients, et cetera? So I think coming up with really good concrete ways and steps that academic health centers, researchers, et cetera, could um, come up with to try to reduce these stigmas would be, I think, a great way to kind of end uh, or continue on with the discussion. So, yeah.
1: That is very well said. Um, I think as Ellie Cell said, the best disinfectant for darkness is light. Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, Well, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I hope you'll come back and join us another time. Oh, I would Um, love to. We'll communicate by email also. Um, Is there... One piece of advice you'd give someone out there who wants to be a doctor, but worries they can't do it because they're neurodivergent. They can't do it.
0: Still go for it. The only person telling you that you can't do something is you. So if you don't apply or you don't go into anything, you're definitely not going to get it anyway. No one is telling you that you can't do it. There's not going to be an admissions. Card. No one's going to say because you are neurodivergent, you can't go into that. It's it's and I hate to say that it's you, it's stigmatized. We understand that. But there's a certain point where we can't let the stigmas really influence how we how we approach our dreams, what we want to do with our life, et cetera. So go for it.
1: What can we as a society do to help reduce the stigma
0: I think as a society, we can realize that we are all different and that the standard that we're held up to doesn't really exist in essence. And so I think it's by being much more open and appreciative of the fact that we all have different and unique experiences, worldviews, cultures, identities, and we have our own little stories in our head about like the little the story in our a little movie of our world in our head. And we need to really appreciate that we, everybody has their own story, their own life and reasons for doing things. And that we really need to appreciate the diversity that people have and give people the benefit of the doubt.
1: Dr. Angelique Harris, thank you so much for being with us here at Different Brains. We hope to have you back. Keep up your great work as uh, the Dean of uh, Diversity and Inclusion at Boston University School of Medicine and all the other research and work hats you're wearing on. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains visit us at differentbrains.org.